We'll be reading today from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, I want to also welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Good to have you with us. Believe is our current teaching series. We're working our way through the gospel according to John. And the title of this weekend's message is In the Beginning. Now, we did a re, uh, an overview of the whole book last weekend, and now we're diving into this book, looking at the first uh, 18 verses. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, here's the key verse to understand the book of John, John chapter 20, verse 31. This was written so that you might believe. He's talking about the gospel of John. This was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. There is a life in Christ that all the success in this world can't give you, and all the suffering in this world can't take from you. It's the fullness of life that Christ came to give to us. John 10.10 makes that clear. And the only way to experience this life is by believing, by putting your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who Christ is and what he came to do for us. And as I said last week, when you think about belief or faith, you need to think about head, heart, hands. So belief is the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ entering the head, there's content to our belief, igniting the heart, so there's conviction, it should move you, stir you, motivate you, 
And then it should move from your head, heart to your hands, out working through your hands. It should transform every aspect of your life. Now, in verses 1 through 18, we have the prologue or the preview, the summary, or you could even call it the movie trailer uh, of the whole book of John, showing us what it means to believe in Christ by answering three questions. You can see these three questions on your, your notes. Who is Jesus? Truth entering the head. How should we respond, igniting the heart, and what difference will it make, outworking through our hands? That's belief, that's faith. So let's take that first question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Verses one through nine, truth, truth entering our head. There's certain things we need to believe about Jesus. It's not just some belief about God, some general belief, but there's specific things we need to believe about God through Christ Jesus. And, and here's the first uh, fill in the blank on your notes. So who is Jesus? He is logic. That might sound a little odd to you, but uh, I'll explain that in just a f- few minutes. So he is logic. Jesus is logic. Take a look at verses one through three. In the beginning was the word. Sound familiar? It goes all, all the way back to Genesis one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so he's saying the word was in the beginning. Now we know the word is Jesus. And so in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So we're already getting a glimpse into the triune God, the Trinity. He was with God. In fact, if you go back to Genesis 1, you see the the triune God creating the heavens and the earth. You see the Holy Spirit in verse 2, and uh, and so you you see that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, is involved in creation. Notice what he also says. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's, he's proclaiming the deity of Jesus. Now, If you compare Christianity to every major cult and religion of our world today, right there, that's the difference. We proclaim the deity of Christ. God came to earth through Jesus Christ to reveal to us the way to God. And and so every other major cult and religion denies the deity of Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. So he's kind of reemphasizing that. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we see the triune God responsible for all of creation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We also see the triune God in our redemption, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and so the word here is interesting because he uses it three times. It's speaking of Jesus but three times, he, he does it three times in verse 1 and then one time in verse 14. And the Greek here is logos. Logos. It's where we get our word logic or reason or meaning or reality. So now, now track with me here. It's important to understand what John's doing as he starts off this, this letter, this book. John was connecting to a cultural debate Greek philosophers believed there was a logos behind the universe, but at best it was an abstract proposition discovered by human speculation. And if we align with it, then then life will go well. For instance, uh, what's the logos or the logic for a watch? To hammer nails 
or to tell time, obviously, <laughs> to tell time. If you're hammering nails with your watch, your watch is not going to last long. And that was the idea behind the philosophers. They knew that there was some sort of design or some sort of order, but they classified it as a proposition and, and yet John said the Logos behind the universe is not a proposition but a person who is not discovered by human speculation but by divine revelation. Major difference between the two. And so what is this divine revelation? What is this person, we know it's Christ, revealing to us about reality, about meaning in life, about reason or logic Look at verse 1. He says, the word was with God. Verse 2, he, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. With God. And then look at verse 18, if you have your Bibles open there. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Literally, that means in the Greek, in the bosom of the Father. Some translations actually put that. He has made him known. Let's just take a thought. Let's think a little deeper about this. Who is at the Father's side in the bosom of the Father? Now, now let's just say you go home this afternoon at 1 o'clock and you're, uh, you've invited some friends from church and maybe some new folks that you've met here today and you're watching the Cardinals beat the Lions. Of course, they're going to do that today at 1 o'clock on Fox, okay, Channel 10, just to let you know. And uh, so you're kind of kicking back on the couch, you're enjoying the game, and someone in that group comes over and lays up next to you. Does that seem a little weird? Yeah, you'd kind of go, unless it was a family member or child or your spouse, you'd be okay with that. But if it was anybody else, you'd go, hey, you weirdo, what are you doing? Why are you getting so close to me? We're touching like right now and I'm trying to watch the game. That would seem weird, wouldn't it? Well, that's the language he's using here. Who's at the Father's side, the, the Greek, in the bosom of the Father. And, and the other verses where he says he was with God, with God. See, this represents the most intimate kind of relationships, is what he's describing here. So the word has come to express to us the most intimate kind of relationships with the Father and the Holy Spirit, and so we know this, from all eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in a loving relationship, delighting in each other. So when you think of the triune God, you need to think of that, loving relationships within the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here's my question for you. If a triune God already had perfect joy in himself, why did he create us? Turn to the person next to you real quick and see if they know the answer to that question. Why did he create us? Okay, here's why he created us. Hopefully you, you were kind of along these lines. He didn't create us to get joy from us, but to give joy to us by bringing us into this relationship with the triune God to fill our hearts with joy as a result of knowing the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Loving relationships is what 
is what life is all about. That's the logic, the reason, the reality, the meaning of life. We are recipients and givers of a love and friendship that is beyond this world. And, and so that's, that's, the, that's why you exist, is to have relationship with God and then out of that relationship, have relationship with others. In fact, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? What's the... What should we aim at in our life? What would, what's the most important thing for life? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's about loving God and loving, loving each other. Loving God and loving each other. Now, it's interesting in Philippians 1.21, Paul gives us really uh, his mission statement, his purpose statement, and he says, to live is What? is Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To live is to know Christ. And then when I die, I even get more of Christ. I get to be with him for all eternity. So he's saying the meaning of life is all about Christ and what he has accomplished for us in reconciling us back to the Father in this loving relationship and then the overflow we share with others. So who is Jesus? He is logic. He's meaning. He's, he's all about relationship. The second point, who is Jesus? He is life. That's your next fill in the blank. <clears throat> he is life. In him was life. That's verse 4, and the life was the light of men. Now, when he talks about life here, he's, he talks, he's talking about both physical and spiritual life. So Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Part of our, part of creation creating us, and so they gave us life. You can't get life from non-life. We just didn't all of a sudden have life, as some people believe. <clears throat> life, Christ gave us life. That's what he's saying, physically, but also spiritually. Let's focus on the spiritual side of life here, just so that we understand what he's talking about here. And uh, so you can you can have a heartbeat. And you can be breathing right now and yet not have spiritual life. Be disconnected from God, alienated from God. Not be spiritually alive. And uh, so let's focus on that spiritual life. Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we're, we're all in the same camp, okay? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every one of us. And that means we fail to see how desirable and satisfying God really is. And so we don't live for his glory. We live for our glory or the glory of something or someone else. That's our tendency. We're sinners by nature and by choice. And it tells us in Romans 6, 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Now, what is death? We know death physically is the body is separated or the soul is separated from the body. That's physical death. What about spiritual death? Spiritual death is that we are separated or alienated from God. We see this all the way back to the garden. They were separated, alienated from God because of their sin. And that's why God walked in the garden in the cool of the day and began to call them out on their sin. Luke 15, 24, and 32, if you're familiar with this, this is the story of the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son took the family's inheritance, went out and blew it on wild living. He comes to his senses, comes back to the father, 
And when he comes back to the father, the father throws a party, embraces him, loves him. And this is what the father says in Luke 15, 24, and 32. My son was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, and now he is found. What is he saying? He's reconciled with the family. He's no longer alienated from the family. And so Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, we're alienated, separated from God. But the, the next part of that verse is beautiful. It's absolutely breathtaking. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It, it's a gift. Every other belief system, it's based on earning or achieving, based on a standard or a set of uh, works of some sort. Christianity is about a gift provided to us through Jesus Christ, but the gift of God through Jesus Christ, but the gift of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is this eternal life? Well, John 17, 3 says, for this is eternal life. So he's going to tell us what eternal life is. For this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The word know, that, you may, that they may know you, the only true God, the word know is not just information about God. You can, you can have really good theology about God and not know God. So that word no is more than just information in your head. It's more than agreement with facts in your head. It's actually really an, an appetite for God in the heart that exceeds all appetites. It's, it's an experience of God. It's that you just don't know that he loves you in your head. You have an experience of his love in your heart. So this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we've been reconciled through Jesus Christ. We have relationship with the living God. The God of the galaxies is our friend, is our savior. I mean, we have relationship with him. So what does that look like? What does it mean to be spiritually alive? And I I came up with a list of things that you, you need to be aware of if indeed you're spiritually alive. You're experiencing this life that Jesus came to give to us. This is what it would look like. And, and particularly if you are spirit-filled, Ephesians 5.18, or walking in the spirit, Galatians 5.16. So people who are alive spiritually are more aware of God and his work in and around their lives. There's just an awareness. You just, you see God's hand. You see his work in your life. You you look at circumstances, you realize those aren't by coincidence. No, God's working in my life. You experience God's soul-satisfying presence in your life. Oh my goodness, there's nothing better than his presence. You are learning to hear and heed God's voice. He speaks to us. He knows us. He loves us. You find strength, stability, and serenity in tough times. You enjoy friendship with God that brings both conviction and comfort. Your life is an adventure being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. God God will lead you spiritually. You hear him speak to you. Maybe he puts someone on your heart And you begin to pray for them or you send them a text message of encouragement and it just so happens to be, bam, at that time they are struggling and it's exactly what they needed. He leads us. He guides us. He speaks to us. 
They feel treasured and, and protected only as a child of God can. They have joy and difficulties and wisdom beyond their years. They have greater energy, excitement, and vitality for life. They have a greater capacity to love God and others because of his overwhelming love towards them. That's the spirit-filled life. That's, that defines or describes people who are alive spiritually. Are you alive spiritually? That's what you should be experiencing in your life. Not a better life than a life that's alive to God and all that he has for us in Jesus Christ. So who is, who is Jesus? He is logic. He is life. Here's the third one. He is light. He is light. Now let me read through these verses all the way from 4 verse 4 to verse 9. See if you can count how many times he uses the word light. I think he's trying to make a point here, okay? Anytime you see a word repeated over and over again, he's trying to make a point. So let's just see. It says here, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear to bear witness about the light. By the way, just let me just say a comment about that. Uh, John was prophesied in the Old Testament. One of those places is Malachi, the last book of uh, the Old Testament. And he was prophesied, he was predicted to be the forerunner of Christ some 500 years earlier. So if you want to really know whether or not the Bible is from God, just one, one way, one piece of evidence, look at prophecies, the predictions that have been fulfilled And so this is what he says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. How many times did he say light, okay? He said it seven times in six verses. So so why do we desperately need light? Why do we desperately need light? Because the world is a dark place full of sin and suffering. And also because because we are ignorant and don't have the ability to solve the sin and suffering problem. We're in darkness. And in fact, so there's darkness in the world and in us. We need help outside the human race. And so we need light. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of what I'm saying here. With all the riots, racism, political divisiveness, evil, and horrible suffering in this world, I often hear the message of humanism. It goes like this. If we could just all come together, love will triumph, and we will be able to put together a world of peace. How many have heard that message? Okay, not very many of us. Huh? Show of hands, how many have seen, heard that? Yeah, okay. Just turn on the TV, watch movies, watch, watch the news, watch when they interview people. That's, that's what our world is all about. So let me, ask you, let me ask you this question. How's that working for us so far? Not so good. I mean, just look around. This place is a mess. And if we just looked at from the time of Christ until now, some 2,000 years, we're not getting any better, folks. You guys know that. 
this place is a mess. And even the 200 plus years, we've had a chance to try to make a difference in good old God bless America. We're a mess. And sometimes I think we're a bigger mess now than ever. You, you, do you guys feel like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not against people showing love and working for peace. <laughs> I'm glad anytime that anybody does that, okay? I applaud that. But we desperately need outside help. We need outside help. Here's, here's another illustration. According to the health experts, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused a substantial rise in anxiety, depression, substance abuse, suicide, and domestic violence. Now, now why, why is this happening? Because we are a culture that gets its meaning primarily from, from created things, from temporal things, as opposed to the creator, eternal things. It's called secular humanism. So think about it. You build your sense of meaning and identity and hope on something that's temporal, suffering is going to take it away from you. And you're going to be anxious and angry and, and depressed inordinately because of that. But if you're building your life on something that's eternal, it will get you through the loss of the temporal things in your life. That's just a fact. That's what the Bible teaches. And so you'll notice here, Really, and I think in answering this question, this idea of secular humanism that's so prominent in our culture, there is not a more fundamental question than what is the meaning of life, and you really only have two choices. We know that the meaning of life in that first, the first point, Jesus, he is logic. He came to show us the meaning of life, but you really only have two choices. It's either going to be human speculation or divine revelation. Divine revelation is light. Light came into the world through Jesus Christ. And so notice this. The light is not from them, the human race. A light has come upon them. I mean, I've heard even in crazy kids' movies where they talk about there's a light within all of us. And if we could all come together, there would be enough light to shine throughout the world and we could be one harmonious family. Uh, no, okay. That's not going to work. And if there's any light within us, it's only because we're image bearers of God. If there's any good in us, it's because we're image bearers of God. And, and so there is, there is some good in that, but we only have two choices, human speculation, divine revelation. And the light is not from them, the human race. The light has come upon them. Look at verse 5. The light shines not from but in the darkness. Verse 9, the true light, so he's saying there's obviously pseudo-lights, there's, there's lights that pretend to be lights, so he says the true light was coming into the world from the outside in, not by human speculation, by man trying to figure this out, but by divine revelation, by divine revelation. So how do we know there is a God? Well, because he's revealed himself to us. How has he, how has he revealed himself to us? Through creation, conscience, Commandments. He wrote a book. You guys did know that, didn't you? We study from it every week. He wrote a book, but ultimately through Jesus Christ. He came to reveal to us God and how to, to be reconciled to God and redeemed and restored back to the life that we have lost through our rebellion and sin. And so, so let me ask you this question. Let me, I'm going to shoot straight with you. 
I always do, though, don't I? Will politics save the day? I mean, if we could just get the right person in office. So then let me ask you this. Then why do we get so worked up over politics? It, 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 it betrays us. It shows that we, we, are, we have misplaced our hope. And, and I'm not saying that politics isn't important. Politics is important. You need to vote. We need to pray that, that God would raise up godly, uh, God-honoring, biblical politicians. We desperately need that. And so we need to pray for that and vote, vote them into office that have biblical values. But listen to me, politics is not, is not going to save the day. Let me ask you another question here. How about education? Is education going to save the day? No, we can just be really highly educated sinners, really, until there's that problem, the sin problem is dealt with it. I'm not against education, by the way. I think it's really, really an important part of our life. It's not going to save the day. How about economics, having a good economy? No, that's not going to save the day. I want a good economy. I want everybody in our fellowship to have a job and to work and, and to prosper in every way, but that's not going to save the day. How about psychology, counseling? I mean, how about counseling? You think counseling? We could just, yeah, get everybody into counselors. Now, if they're godly counselors, that would be another thing, pointing to Jesus, that would be great. How about self-help? Would self-help? And listen, I'm not against any of these, and I even believe that self-help can be somewhat beneficial because it helps you to take responsibility for your life, and we all need to do that. We all need to do that. None of these will save the day. There's only one thing that will save the day, and it's the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. So, so spend less time arguing about politics or education or any of these other things and proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Yeah, that's worth clapping for right there. Thank you. All five of us right here. Okay. Praise God. That's right on. Let's try to work on this group over here, though. No, you guys are with us, too, aren't you? Okay. You guys are just kind of stunned, like, oh. Yeah, I mean, this is important. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, turn hatred into love, bring about forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace like the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Now, look at verse 9 in our text. He says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is for everyone. This light is for everyone. That's why we need to proclaim it to everyone. So who is Jesus? He is logic, life, light. Now how should we respond? This is our responsibility here. How should we respond? Verses 10 through 13. So truth entering the head, who is Jesus? Igniting the heart, how should we respond? Now, this is what you need to keep in mind. You cannot have love and relationship without freedom and choice. And I know that some of you, when you first met Nancy and I, you took a good look at me, and then you looked at her, and you didn't say this, but I saw it on your face. 
you said, that guy must have forced her beyond her will to marry him. Okay, you, you were thinking that, weren't you? But I, I just, I'm up here to just tell you the truth. Her dad, her dad paid me to marry her. Don't tell her, she doesn't know. I'm still getting money, too. I'm kidding. That's a joke, obviously. The second best day of my life, the second best day of my life is when my wife said, I do. She responded to my pursuit of love for her. And that was, it'll be 43 years ago this next month. It's just, uh, praise God. She responded to my love. I didn't force her to marry me, okay? And so you're probably wondering, what was the first best day of your life? The first best day of my life was when I said, I do, to my Savior. He pursued me with his love, and I responded, and I said, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. So let's look at the response of, there's two wrong responses, and then we'll look at the third right response. How should we respond? Here's the first wrong response. The world did not recognize him. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Why did the world not know him? Well, there's a number of reasons for that, but here's just a few of those reasons. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Satan is alive and he's real and he blinds people's eyes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also there's kind of a self-imposed blindness that we have too. It says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, whoever loves the world and the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I looked up that word love and it's agape love. So if you have an agape love for the world, the love of the Father is not in you is what he's saying or the things of this world. No, we live in a God-ignoring, sin-adoring, self-exalting, truth-distorting, amusement-overdosing culture. That's where we live. We live in a culture that is entertaining itself straight to hell and doesn't even know it. I mean, think of all the screen time we have with TV, movies, you know, TV shows, a network for every one of our idols. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Social media, all of this, a distraction. It can be good if it's used appropriately, but right now I, I see it, it's, it's really, really bad. We're preoccupied with so much of this stuff. And we, we live in a culture that is deceived into thinking that created things are more desirable and satisfying than the creator. That's insane. So you can be so intoxicated by creation that you totally miss the creator. That's where our world is. And so the world did not recognize him. And then here's the next one. His own did not receive him. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now why is that? Why did the Jews not receive Jesus? That was... You know, that's his background. He was a Jewish man. In fact, what's interesting is that he came to his own home. Literally, if you read that out, he he came home and his family rejected him. 
Why is that? I think there's a number of reasons for that, but I think Jesus uh, helps us to understand that in Matthew 23. He talks about the Pharisees, and he describes their pride in Matthew 23, verses 11 and 12. And then he talks about the result of their pride, because pride blinds you to your sinfulness and therefore your need for Christ. And they were filled with pride Matthew 23, 11 through 12, pride. And then in verse 17 of that chapter, he calls them blind fools. Verse 19, blind men. Verse 24, blind guides. Verse 26, you blind Pharisees. So pride has a way of blinding us to our sinfulness and therefore our need for Christ. Now think about this just for a minute. If you don't have a desperate need for Jesus... Even right now, if you're not saying, as the psalmist said in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O God. If that's not happening in you, it's probably because you have pride. There's pride that you're wrestling with, you're working through. You need to be working through it. There should be this desperate need for Christ, especially when you see your sinfulness. But pride will keep you from seeing your sinfulness, therefore your need for Christ and they had pride that blinded them to their sinfulness and therefore their need for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah. They just didn't see that Jesus was the Messiah. Psalm 36, 2, it puts it this way. This is really good psychology right here, this verse. It's really powerful. It says this. He, or sinful people, flatter themselves in their own eyes so that their iniquity cannot be found out or hated. So I'm really struggling with my life, so I'm going to go to a secular counselor, and that secular counselor takes me from an inferiority complex to a superiority complex. This counselor flatters me so much that I can't even detect my sin nor hate my sin within me. You can even go to a church that does that. They take you from an inferiority complex to a superiority complex and never deals with your sin. Therefore, you can hate your sin and be drawn even that much more to the Savior. It's, it's really, a, it's pride, but it's also a form of narcissism. That you can flatter yourself so much that you cannot detect the sin that's within you and therefore hate that sin and be drawn to Christ. That's pride. First John 1, 7 through 9, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, talking about Jesus, so if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, with, with Christ Jesus, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Why would he say the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin? Well, hey, we're walking in the light. Isn't that good? Yeah, but that light will, dis- will, will reveal our darkness. And so as we walk in the light, it will reveal. If you're truly walking with Jesus, believe me, he will reveal the darkness in your heart, your sinfulness. And that's a really, really good thing. He does not convict us to shame us, but to set us free, to bring us closer to himself to draw us closer, to deal with those things that are, that are hurting us and going to damage us and push us away from him. So if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's 1 John 1.8. So, if you feel that you are always right and everyone else is wrong, then you're delusional. There is right and wrong in all of us. 
By the way, I struggled with that in the early years of my marriage. I was always right. And I worked hard to convince her that I was always right, okay? And it didn't go over really well, okay? It's not a good way of building a bridge if you've come off like you're always right because you're not always right, okay? And uh, fortunately, she, uh, she lovingly confronted me. And I had to look at myself. I had flattered myself in my own eyes. I could not detect my own sin nor hate it. And... Uh, Healthy, self-aware people are honest about the good and the bad in their lives. I ought to be able to come to you and you ought to be able to tell me what God's working on you, where, what areas of your life he's working on in you. What are your struggles? What are your weaknesses? What's going on? Otherwise, I would say that you're not walking in the light. Because if you walk in the light, you're going to have fellowship with him and you're going to begin to see your sin. That's so healthy. That's so important. Healthy, self-aware people are honest about the good and the bad in their lives. If you ever come across to anyone like you have no faults or if, or if you are unteachable when someone points out a fault in you, then you are in the process of becoming a narcissistic Pharisee keeping you from God's grace. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. All you need is need. All you need to do is recognize that, that you are sinful and in desperate need of a Savior, and you have his grace, his favor. And so the world did not recognize him. They were intoxicated by the, this world his own did not receive him. They were full of pride, but those who received him became children of God. That's your next fill in the blank. Look at verse 12. It's a beautiful verse. But to all who did receive him, to accept for one's self, that's what that means, who believed in his name, to place one's trust in, head, heart, hands, he gave the right to become children of God. Notice receiving and believing in Christ proceeds having the right to become a child of God. As I said last weekend, this word belief is used 98 times. That's the basis of the whole book, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we may have life in his name. 2031 of John. So belief is truth entering the head, the truth about person and work of Jesus Christ, entering our head, igniting our heart, outworking through our hands. James 2, 17 through 26 says, faith without works is dead. So here's the deal. You can have a said faith and not have a real faith. You could come up and tell me, oh yeah, I'm a believer. I committed my life to Jesus. I walked the aisle. I signed the card. I got dunked in the tank and not be a believer. You can have a said faith, but not a real faith. Let me give you an illustration of uh, belief. Let's just say that you are camping and in the middle of the night you are awakened by a bear rummaging around your camp just outside your tent. It's a full moon. You see the silhouette of the bear kind of in the outline in the side of your tent. And so... If you rolled over and went back to sleep, I would say, you don't actually believe there's a bear out there because you wouldn't be responding like that, okay? You might say, oh, there's a bear out there, and you roll over and you go back to sleep. I'd say, no, you don't actually believe that, okay? <laughs> because it's going to make a difference in how you respond. Or you could go outside half asleep and see what's going on. 
and become bear food. But here's what belief would look like if you actually believed that there, there is actually a bear out there. Truth entering the head, content, there's a real bear outside my tent, exclamation mark. Igniting the heart, conviction, that bear can rip through this tent and kill me, two exclamation marks. Outworking through the hands, commitment, I better grab my gun and get ready to protect myself, three exclamation marks. Oh, I forgot my gun. Yeah. See, see, belief is about your head, heart, hands. It's going to make a difference in your life. Listen, if you encounter the God of the galaxies through Jesus Christ, he's going to transform your life from the inside out. And as you walk in vital union and communion with him, he will continue to transform you. You will be transformed by him. As you walk with him and as you know him, as you experience him, because there's nothing like that. There's absolutely nothing like that. That's the fullness of life that he came to give to us. Notice what he says in verse 13. Not of blood, so it's not of lineage, nor of the will of the flesh, it's not self-help or willpower, nor of the will of man, human speculation, but of God, by divine revelation and power. So when you hear the gospel message, so it tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of God. So when you hear the gospel message and you respond by receiving and believing his name, you'll be given the right to become a child of God. That's amazing. That's out of this world. So, if you've made a commitment to Christ and you haven't made it public through water baptism, I would love the opportunity to hold you under the water <laughs> for as long as we need to. We won't hold you under that long, okay? But, but to help you to, to make a public declaration, dramatization, demonstration, of you identifying with the substitutionary atonement of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he died in your place for your sins and he has given you newness of life. There's no greater acceptance, security, and significance than being a child of God. I know, I know life's hard. You can take a beating in life. I've, I've had, I've, I've experienced that beating. I've taken some hits. I've had some wounds. All of us have. Okay, so you, so you didn't get the date. You didn't get the job. You didn't get the promotion. You didn't make the team or you didn't get accepted into the school or maybe even worse than, than any of those. You've gone through a divorce or the death of a spouse or a diagnosis with a terminal disease. All of those are hard and you need to grieve those but I'm telling you, there's not a more consolable truth than to know that you are a child of God and that will help you through any kind of grief, that you are a child of God. I mean, I would encourage you, I mean, the rest of the day and then when you get up the first thing tomorrow morning, just think about this. Think out the implications. Meditate on that. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. You're a child of God. If you have received him and believed in his name, you are a child of God. That's why why John goes right through the ceiling when he says in 1 John 
3.1. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's almost like it just it kind of dawned on him as he's writing. He's just going, oh my goodness, this is overwhelming. You're a child of God. Nothing better. So what difference will it make? Outworking through our hands. As we behold his glory, we will become whole. Let's take that first part there. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he who I said. You can, you can hear a little bit of glory in his, in his proclaiming of Jesus This was he whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, so the word Jesus, logos, logic, meaning became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally in the Greek, it means he tabernacled among us. And so the writer John is is kind of grabbing a hold of the Old Testament idea of tabernacle And so in Exodus, the tabernacle was at the center of their camp, the meeting place of God and man. So he's saying, here's the meeting place of God and man through Jesus Christ. He tabernacled among us or with us. He was here. God became a human, flesh and blood. And and they took that tabernacle with them into the promised land. And, and, And then he goes on and he says, we have seen his glory Literally, we have beheld his glory is what that, what that Greek word means for seeing. Behold, view attentively, contemplate. So here's what it means to behold the glory of God. It's more than just uh, getting a hold of certain truths about who Christ is and what he's done for you. It's those truths begin to get a hold on you. They get a hold on your heart and your life. My wife and I were headed to our workout this last week, and we were, uh, we were listening to the song on Spotify, Sweetly Broken. If you're familiar with that song, it's a beautiful song. At the cross, you beckon me, you draw me gently to my knees. And as I was reflecting deeply about all that Christ has done for me, I began to weep. It's not a good way to prepare for your workout, but... But, but that's what I was doing. I mean, tears just begin to come from my eyes. And I'm, I'm thinking my wife's sitting next to me. She's going to, what is she going to think here? That I'm having a nervous breakdown or something maybe. But no, I'm just overwhelmed. I begin to think deeply about the cross. And there's a line in that song that I felt like I was truly experiencing. And I'm lost for words so lost in love. When was the last time that you had that but as you begin to reflect deeply about the cross, about what Jesus has done for you, have you ever been lost for words, so lost in love? See, that's beholding his glory. There's nothing quite like it. See, the Christian life is not a call to behave. It's a call to behold. And believe me, it will change your behavior. But it's first and foremost, come and behold the beauty and the glory of our Savior. Exodus 33, 18 through 19 and 
chapter 34, verse 6. Moses is leading the the nation of Israel uh, through the wilderness into the promised land, and God says, I'm not going... I'm not going from this point on. I'm not going to lead you into the promised land. You guys are a stiff-necked people. And Moses is overwhelmed by that. He's kind of freaked out about it, and he begins to intercede with God. And in fact, God says to him, I'm not going, but I'm going to send an angel to take you into the promised land. I'm going to, go, I'm going to give you what I promised to you, but I'm not going with you. And so Moses begins to intercede, and he, and he basically is saying this, God, listen, we would, rather, we would rather wander around in the wilderness with your presence than to go into the promised land, the land of milk and honey, without your presence. You hear what he's saying? All the money, all the wealth, all the success in this world does not compare to having you, your presence. And he says, show me your glory. And God says, my glory, actually he says, my goodness will pass before you. And then in the next chapter, his goodness passes before him. Notice he doesn't say, my judgment will pass before you or my wrath will pass before you. He says, my goodness will pass before you in in his request to see the glory of God. And so that second chapter, that next chapter, chapter uh, 34, God passes before him and he says, I am... I am the Lord who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We don't even have time to unpack that because that's absolutely breathtaking. That's how he wants to interact with it. That's that's truly the the glory of God revealed through the goodness of God to to all of us. And it's breathtaking. Here's, Here's what I'm saying. Fill your mind and heart with the breathtaking beauty and the infinite value of who Christ is and what he's done for you. And you, it will ruin you for anything else. It will totally ruin you for anything else and make you whole like nothing else. And that's the next last fill in the blank. We're almost finished. We will become whole. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law. And he, he describes what this grace upon grace is in, the, in verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen, has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about how this beholding of his glory makes us whole. As we all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of God are, be, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's in the beholding of the glory of Christ we become whole. So wholeness is about becoming God's best version of you. So as we behold his glory, we become whole. How does this happen? Verse 6, 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You hear what he's saying? Grace upon grace is God's favors, his gifts, heaped up one upon another, sufficient to meet every recurring need. And in fact, the greatest of all the gifts that God gives to those he favors is himself. And it's a realization. Remember what I said the writer here five times, he refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loves. It's a realization, hey, I'm his favorite. (laughs) It's realizing, man, you love me so much that I feel bad for others. I'm not sure that they're getting as much love as I'm getting from you. That's the idea. That's his grace. That's his favor. 
In fact, there should be those moments where you just understand. And by the way, it, we call it, we call grace, what do we call grace? How do we define it? Unmerited favor? It's not unmerited, I'm sorry. It has to be earned, but it can't be earned by you. It's been earned already by Jesus Christ. So we tend to throw it around a little bit, say, oh, unmerited, unmerited favor. He just kind of, God just gives us his unmerited favor. Listen, it cost God his son. It was extremely costly. It was earned for you once and for all. You have his favor. And his favor is, is to realize that you have you have his undistracted or undivided attention, unconditional affection, unlimited action, working for your good and his glory. He always has your best interest at heart. He will never leave you or forsake you. You have God's favor over and over again. What more do you need? My wife and I will be up front at the end of the service. If you're, you are new, we would love to meet you. If you need prayer for any particular reason, we'd love to pray with you. If you, you want to make a confession of faith to Jesus, we would love to celebrate that with you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, thank you for sending your Son as the logic to show us the meaning of life, and through him we have incomparable life and a light in this dark world of sin and suffering. We receive and we believe in his name so that we can become your dearly loved children. Teach us what it means to behold him, particularly as we study through the gospel of John so that we can become whole more and more like him. We pray these things for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Love you guys. God bless you.